0: Welcome to BDO2GO, to casual industry conversation brought to you by the restaurant industry professionals at BDO. The constantly evolving landscape of the industry forces operators and owners to adapt quickly and maintain a keen awareness of consumer and economic shifts. Understanding these business impacts and insights is key to the continued success and resilience of the restaurant industry. That's why we crafted our new BDO2GO podcast series, a monthly podcast that you can take to go. Now here's your host, Jeff Tuba.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the BDO to go restaurant podcast. We appreciate you tuning in for this episode and we hope you're enjoying all the content we're providing as we seek to connect good people in this great industry, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast, to automatically download the episodes, and we invite you to drop us a rating as well. So our firm has been hosting the restaurant CFO bootcamp for over 20 years. This year, the event was held in Denver, Colorado in early June. We decided to dedicate our podcast this month to sharing some sound bites from the event that will hopefully educate you on a few topics impacting the industry right now. This event has seen a tremendous mix of concepts over the years who send their CEOs, CFOs, controllers, directors of accounting, and even owners to come and learn, network, and discuss industry best practices. If you're interested in potentially joining us at a future conference, please go to our restaurant page at bdo.com and send a note to our team. Here is attorney Alicia Boltmer, who's hitting the challenging topic of labor.
2: Alicia is an attorney and shareholder with Greenberg Traurig.
3: Alicia graduated from California Western School of Law and resides in Dallas. Uh, today, she will be presenting on hot topics in labor law and employment. Uh, I was fortunate enough to sit with Alicia this morning at breakfast, and I also got a sneak peek of some of the slides, so uh, looking forward to this session here. I think it's going to be
2: pretty, pretty entertaining. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to you.
3: I have been practicing for 26 years, and yes, for those of you who are mathematicians, because you're all CFOs, that means I did graduate from law school at the age of three. That is correct. Um, uh, my father refers to me as Lawyer Barbie. I have no idea why, um, but I'm here today to talk about hot topics in employment law. So I've got six topics I want to cover, and for those of you who are sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, Lawyer Barbie's up on stage, she's going to talk about employment stuff, I'm a CEO or a CFO, I don't care. Let me tell you why you do. Everything that I am going to talk about is going to have or could have a financial impact on your business, every single thing. So this is relevant. I welcome questions. We have uh, quite a bit to get through, but please feel free to interrupt if you'd like. I'm not a slide reader. Um, so you can read the slide yourself. I may point out some things for you. But as you can see, these are our six topics. As I look at these and I think about my 26 years that I've been practicing, I think that this, this list has changed quite a bit. You know, when I first started practicing, this list would be very different. Perhaps unionizing would still be on it, but most of these other things would not. It makes me yearn for the good old days. You know, you all remember the good old days, right, when we didn't have to worry about most of this stuff. So interspersed in this presentation, we are going to reflect back on those good old days because I want you all to just not go, come away with a terrible feeling after you hear the lawyer speak. So with that, we're going to start with our first good old day of remembrance. Hopefully this will bring back memories. I'll take over
2: the fryer for a while. Those boys at IBM ordered a whole stack of those Catch of the Day boxes. I told them that you would personally deliver them within the hour. All right, sir. Hamilton, come over here. What are you doing?
3: I'm changing.
2: But you took off your Captain Hook uniform.
3: Well, I thought I'd put my street clothes on for the drive over to IBM. The uniform's kind of uncomfortable.
1: Hamilton, you're going over there as a representative of Captain Hook Fish and Chips.
3: Part of our image, part of our appeal is that uniform. You know that. You really want me to put this stuff back on? Yes, I do. Show a little pride. (sighs) Yes, sir. All right, for those of you who don't recognize, this is the Fast Times at Ridgemont. High. Yeah, the good old days when you, all you had to do was worry about, you know, people wearing their uniforms when they were doing their delivery, right? So let's jump right into the, the good stuff. We'll talk about unionizing. Anybody know who this is, by the way? He's got a name. His name is Scabby the Rat. If you ever see him, that is his proper name, Scabby. Um, unions love to put Scabby up. He's a, you know, a union symbol. Um, There's a lot going on right now. If you haven't read the news, hopefully you are aware of what I'm talking about. But um, this this chart shows there, are I think, are six dots on this chart of where the union activity is currently taking place. And you're going to want to remember six dots because we're going to come back to that. So what do we got going on here? March 2021, we have uh, a bakery in California. And if you notice, I've got the union names there. So this is the International Longshore and Warehouse Union for the Tartine Bakery in California. We've got Illinois and Wisconsin, Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 494, Collective Oak Coffee. We've got um, Unionizing in New York and Kansas. Um, Nani's Kitchen, this one was really interesting. This is a Workers United um, that unionized this particular restaurant. And Workers United, if you don't know, is a, um, not a breakoff, but an affiliate of SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. So they're, they're related. Nani's actually invited the union to come, by the way very interesting. You don't see that very often. But they asked them to come. Um, Starbucks. How many of you have been reading about Starbucks? Yeah. Okay, so Starbucks just won, or excuse me, not Starbucks. The union just won their 100th unionizing campaign for Starbucks. This was all over the legal rags yesterday and the day before. So they have now unionized or won 100 of their campaigns. They're winning 90 percent roughly, of the campaigns that they have. There are over 2,000 Starbucks employees who are unionized now. There are approximately 175 more union petitions in the works for more Starbucks. And why should you care? So what? I don't care about Starbucks. I'm not Starbucks. Well, because these things spread. When, When you have more people unionizing, especially younger employees, this is something that can catch fire. I think you all know this, especially with your workforce today. So you should be watching these trends. And you should be thinking to yourself, well, I may not be in New York or Kansas, but you know, people talk, and this is in the news. And you may have disgruntled younger employees who want more flexible schedules. And they want you know, better pay, and they want to be able to take off, and I, I heard this yesterday, take off and go to the concert, you know, wh- whoever it was. I want to go see Sticks, or I don't know, whoever. I want to go see a concert. You may have to start letting them do that. We also have Oregon, one of my favorite places, Voodoo Donuts. Um, They were unionized in March 2020 by the workers of the world. Now, if if you're wondering why I put the union names here, is there anything that's striking you as we're going through these different names? There are different names, right? We've got lots of different unions coming in. It's not just one union who's walking in and saying, oh, I'm going to start unionizing all these restaurants. There are lots of unions who are saying, we want to go after the restaurants. And they're very different. So you have, you know, um, uh, Burgerville, as I'm looking at the screen here. This is December 2021. You know what's really interesting about Burgerville? Does anybody know what Burgerville is? Anybody ever been to Burgerville? Okay, so you're familiar with them. This is the first fast food concept restaurant where they created their own union. So there is the Burgerville Workers Union, and they went to the National Labor Relations Board and said, we want to be recognized as a union. We're not the, you know, international brotherhood of electric workers. We're not workers of the world. We want to be our own union, and they've been recognized. How scary is that for an employer? How scary? Do you know what the average impact of a union is on a company? This is, this is for all you CFOs out there. This is, a, this is a good one. What the increase in your operational costs are? Anybody guess? Thirty percent. It's a Pretty big number, if you ask me. I mean, I've been listening to all of these talks about how you're trying to reduce costs, be efficient, and now think about it. If you get a union who comes in the door, that could be at least a 30% increase in your costs. Where are you gonna make that up? When you got skyrocketing you know, labor costs, you've got skyrocketing um, protein costs, you've got all these other things, your know, real estate costs, et cetera. Now you gotta worry about this. These, these are serious issues. All right, so. This chart shows the Workers United Joint Board locations. Remember, I told you remember those six dots, right? That's where the activity is recently. Look at all the dots on this chart. This is where they have uh, not headquarters, but locations, outreach locations. Notice how many more dots there are. There are at least 30-ish, if not more. What does that tell you? That tells you there's a lot of union offices, and when there's a lot of union offices, that means there are a lot of union employees who can go out and start talking to your employees. You know, helping with union, union campaigns, those kinds of things. So what you see is a growth, and I think you all know this. A lot of times, it, and most of the time, it depends on who's in office. And politics aside, when the Democrats are in office, union strength tends to, to increase, and when the Republicans are in, it tends to decrease. We've seen a big uptick, and as you saw from the dates, this has been going on since uh, around 2019, 2020. So, I will tell you, I anticipate this will only increase. So, what do you do? You got to understand the process. I'm not going to give you a lecture on how unions work, but what I am going to tell you is this. It's not that hard. Thirty percent of a particular workforce needs to sign a card. Okay? I want a union. If they do that, they go to the board and they say, we want to vote, we want a secret vote, okay? Well, what do you need for a secret vote? You need 50% plus one to get a union in the door, okay? Now, here's the fun part. Do you think it's 50% plus one of the entire workforce who has to vote? No, it's whoever votes. If I get 30%, uh, the 30% part, it's got to be everybody in the workforce, 30% of the workforce. But when it comes time to vote, if I have 200 employees and 100 people vote, what do I need to get the union in that door? Come on, you guys are CFOs, what's the number? 51, does that scare anybody? It should, that's how the process works. That's what you need to know, you need to understand that process, sweat the small stuff. This is where the anecdotes come in. Lawyers love anecdotes, we love our stories. So, I got a call from a, not a restaurant client, but a um, manufacturing client with a warehouse, and they said, we have had a lot of complaints about a manager, okay? Uh, they hired this gentleman, um, a retired Marine, very bright, very orderly, which I love, um, and they just had a lot of complaints. He's too hard on us, he's, you know, he yells at us, he, he treats us like a drill sergeant, et cetera, et cetera. So I go in and I interview him and I'm talking to him about his management style and he's complaining about the employees and he says, I keep finding these these pieces of literature in the break room and and I keep throwing them out. And I said, well, what are you finding? It says something about a union on it. How long have you seen that? Ah, Weeks and weeks. I just throw them in the trash. Good to know. Did Did you keep any of them? Nope. Do you know what the union was? Nope. OK, so I'm in a, almost in a panic trying not to show him this. Um, you know, talk to him longer. Find out, you know, he's, these, these employees, they complain. They're just like little babies. They'd never survive in the, in the Army or in the, in the Marines or anywhere else, and so he goes off on his tangent. So here's the short of the story. The employees were unhappy for a number of reasons. Here's the small stuff. Their ice machine didn't work, and the warehouse was not air-conditioned. So, you know, when they went on break, they wanted ice. Ice machine didn't work. It gets over 100 degrees in Texas. Think about being in a warehouse in that. They had one microwave for the entire, entire warehouse because all the other microwaves were broken. And, and they had two or three bathrooms for all of, all of the warehouse. You know, I think two or three for the men, two or three for the, for the women. There were bathrooms in the corporate office that the warehouse employees were told they could not use. Okay? Even if the bathrooms were broken, or they were occupied, or you had an emergency, you could not use those other bathrooms. And guess what? They got unhappy. And guess what? Do you think the union won? Do you think they unionized? They did. They sure did. And this little stuff, complaining about an ice machine, don't let that stuff pass you by, because that is the kind of thing that the unions glom onto. No unhappy workers. They don't care about you, it's so hot out there, they want you to sweat and die. That's the kind of message they're getting. And when you're working out there, you know, eight or ten hours a day, that's, that's what you hear and you can believe that. You can believe that. So do pay attention to the small things. Very, very important. Understand the rules. This may shock some of you. If it doesn't, I'll be surprised. The National Labor Relations Board, which is the governing body for unions, makes a bunch of rules for unionized employers, like what, what you can and can't do. Do you all know that their employment-related rules for conduct apply to non-union employers like you? Let me repeat that. Do you know that the labor rules related to conduct apply to non-union shops? Does everybody know that? Shake ahead. head. Y'all looking at me like really funny. All right, so I'll give you an example. Under the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board rules, there are rules that say things like you cannot have a policy that says um, you cannot disparage the company. Now, how many of you have a handbook that says something like that, you can't take any action that would reflect negatively or disparage our company? Okay, can't have that. What about surveillance? or recording in the workplace. What if you have a policy in your handbook that says, thou shalt not record anything in our workplace? NLRB doesn't like that one either. What about talking to the media? Okay, employees shall not talk to the media. You cannot be a representative. Can't have that one either. So if you have a handbook, and I know you're CFOs, but if if your company has a handbook, you're going to want to tell somebody, you better look at it. So you're all probably looking at me saying, okay, Lawyer Barbie, great. That's handbook stuff. Why do I care? Well, because if an employee complains and they know to go to the NLRB, you can get in trouble. So if you fired somebody for violating one of those rules and they complain, you're going to have to hire them back and pay back pay, okay? get your bottom line, right? need to know that. You need to train your managers. Don't be like my marine manager who just ignored everything and put the wool over his eyes, He just didn't want to hear it, didn't want to see it. Tell them to pay attention. There's a whole other set of rules that applies when it comes to the fact that you know a union is trying to organize. That is a whole other discussion. But it, managers need to know if they see any signs, they've got to bring it up the chain. They've got to. The risk is too high. All right, this is another really fun topic. No poaching agreements, we all know we all know Mr. Fudd, right? Hunting rabbits? I don't do a really good impression, or I would, I would try. All right, two kinds of no-poach agreements. Um, no-poach agreements are governed by something called the Sherman Act, and there are two kinds. There is a horizontal and a vertical, okay? just, just like the arrows say. So a horizontal no-poach agreement would be two direct competitors saying, I'm not going to hire your folks, you don't hire my folks. So Burger King, McDonald's, you know, CEOs get together and go, hey, you know, don't hire my guys and I won't hire your guys. Okay? That is per se illegal. That is a, what we call, and I love this, a naked restraint on trade. can't just be a restraint on trade, it's got to be a naked one. I don't know. That's government language. That's a naked restraint on trade, that is a no-no. The one that you all should care about is the vertical. And the vertical is one where you have a franchisor and a franchisee typically, and the franchisor says, thou shalt not hire my employees, Mr. Franchisee, or Ms. Franchisee, um, and you also can't go out and hire my other franchisee's employees. This is fairly standard language in a lot of franchisor contracts that were written in the last 10 years. I don't know if you've ever looked at them. I don't know if you've ever seen your franchisor contracts if you're a franchisor or a franchisee, but this is a problem. Okay, here we get to the why do I care, Lawyer Barbie. This is the fun part. There are two kinds of liability under the Sherman Act. There's criminal and there's civil. Under the criminal side, if the government comes after you, anybody want to guess what the maximum penalty is for a violation? Just guess, throw out a number, somebody throw out a number for fun. Anybody? A year. Sorry? A year. A year? Okay. Um, just the penalty, just the num- numerical, just give me a number. A hundred million dollars. I'm not making that up. That's the maximum, that's your maximum penalty on the criminal side for the company is hundred million. There is criminal liability for individuals too, okay? That is a million dollar, you could get, be subject to a million dollar fine and up to 10 years in jail. And if you're thinking, the government's not gonna throw anybody in jail, they already have violating these rules. So don't think they're not coming after anybody because they are. This is a priority, by the way, uh, for Department of Justice. Alright, so we have states going after companies, including restaurants, by the way. You are not immune. In fact, they're they are looking at you all because of the franchisor-franchisee relationships. Um, I've got a couple of cases up here, both Steiger and DeLans. Both involve franchisor-franchisee agreements where the franchisor said, hey, Franchisee, don't you go after my employees and don't you go after my other franchisee's employees. The first one out of Washington settled on undisclosed terms because they didn't want to face a trial. The second one is still pending and they are fighting over whether or not the case should be dismissed. Right, so that one, that one is live, what's going on in, in Illinois. And it'll be interesting because when you get to the you know, franchisor or franchisee, the uh, vertical, uh, no-poach agreement, there's a standard that applies. It's called the rule of reason. So basically you have to show that you have a really good reason why you've got that that language in your contract. Why do you have that no-poach stuff in there? If you can't substantiate it, if you don't have a really good reason, that's bad. You're probably going to lose. So remember, civil and criminal uh, liability. Yes? The question is, does this apply uh, to executives to the folks that work in our restaurants on a daily basis, is there a distinction between it? And I'm thinking that vertical is probably where they're going after more than the horizontal, but I don't really know. Yeah, so, so I guess maybe your question, another way to put it is, is, could my manager, you know, if my manager's doing this, could they be, could they be liable, potentially? I mean, the, the government likes to get a big fish, we all know that, I mean, they want a nice, splashy, you know, CFO or CEO of, of big company gets you know, thrown in jail. Um, but if that agreement is made by somebody at a lower level, there is liability. They're not immune. Uh, it, it, I think it's going to depend on who, who actually does the no-poach agreement. I mean, it could be at a CEO level. It could be at a, at a district manager level, you know, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. We're not going to hire your folks. Don't hire our folks. It happens mm-hmm. more than you think. I have clients who tell me they do that, and I keep telling them, don't, you know, la, 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 don't do it. Because you've got got potential liability here, and there's nothing I can do if if you get caught with that. There's there's no defense. I mean, and especially if if you do it, and a lot of people say, well, you know, we're just gonna do it by text message or something like that. We all know that's all discoverable. So a lot of times that's what it is. It's something that they might think they're never gonna get caught, but somehow someone gets wind of it. Could be a text message, maybe an email. That's all the evidence that you need. You know, hey, don't hire my folks, I won't hire yours. That's all you need. All right, so takeaways here. Look at agreements or, or delegate to the people you know do this to look at the agreements and see what your franchise agreements say, see what your hiring agreements say, and make sure your HR departments know about this rule. And now you're probably saying, well, why is she talking about HR now? She didn't say anything about HR. Okay, you just heard the prior uh, presentation about benchmarking. And one of the things I heard was benchmarking labor costs and and things like that. I think benchmarking is important, especially for this industry. Here's where you have to be careful. So the Department of Justice in 2016 2016 issued a memo. You can feel free to Google it while I'm talking. Um, And basically what it says is, we want to put out this uh, guidance and advice to human resources. And by the way, here's what we think you should not do. Do not be sharing your your labor information, your, you know, wages, that kind of thing with other HR departments. Why? Because we think that that could be some kind of price fixing, wage fixing. Okay? You can do it anonymously. Anonymous surveys are fine and that's what the data that you were presented before this presentation perfectly fine. But if you're talking to your, you know, folks down the road, uh, maybe not direct competitors, but you know, the restaurants who are in the same area that you're in and you're saying, hey, you know, what are you paying per hour? And what are we paying per hour? And "Huh?" And you're, you're looking at all this data. That is a, that is a problem. And this, this guidance, I, I recommend it for any HR department because it's eye-opening. It's absolutely eye-opening when you read it and you see what they say, you know. When you talk about this, when you share you know, labor data and statistics and things like that, unless it's completely anonymous and you've taken all the identifiers out of it, that could lead to liability too. So make sure you know what your HR departments are doing because there's liability. Okay, anybody ready for the good old days again? <laughs> After the 100 million dollar potential, potential fines? Hopefully you'll see if you recognize this one. And I, um...
2: We need to talk about your flare.
3: Really? I, I have 15 pieces on. I, uh,
2: well, well, okay, sorry. 15 is the minimum, okay? Uh, okay. Now, you know, it's up to you whether or not you want to just do the bare minimum or, uh, well, like Brian, for example, has 37 pieces of flair on today, okay? Mm. And a terrific smile.
1: Okay, so you, you want me to wear more?
2: <laughs> Look, Joanna. Yeah? People can get a cheeseburger anywhere, okay? They come to tchotchkes for the atmosphere and the attitude. Okay, that's what the flare's about. It's about fun. Yes.
1: Okay, so more then, yeah?
2: <laughs> Look, we want you to express yourself, okay? Now, if you feel that the bare minimum is enough, then okay. But some people choose to wear more, and we encourage that, okay? You do want to express yourself, don't you? Y-
3: yeah.
0: Okay, great, great.
2: That's all I...
3: All right, yeah, anybody recognize this one? Office space, right, right, okay. Another, another very important problem from the past, how much tchotchke are you wearing on your uniform? Probably, I, I will tell you, I would prefer that, you know, this issue to the poaching issue where our, you know someone could be held liable for $100 million. All right, let's get to arbitration agreements. How many of you use arbitration agreements? Okay, got a handful. I like arbitration agreements personally. Um, I think still, based on my experience, there's, arbitration is still less expensive overall than um, litigation and also the nice thing about arbitration is as you know, it's confidential and private. So even if you get walloped in an arbitration, it's not gonna be some big public you know, um, uh, article in the paper or on the news, that kind of thing. So hopefully all of you know that in March of this year, um, a new federal law passed uh, ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act. I think it's like FF if, we, if we did a, um, uh, just a, a moniker of it. You know, lawyers love to shorten everything and give it a fun name, but this is too long for that. So what does it do? Okay, what it does in a nutshell is it says, you can no longer require someone to arbitrate a sexual harassment claim or um, a, any kind of sexual, non, non-consensual sexual conduct claim like um, uh, touching or hopefully it wouldn't be something as, as bad as sexual assault, but sexual assault would be covered under that too. So what that means is that if you have an arbitration agreement, and I will tell you almost every one of them has every claim in it that it can, including these, it's no longer going to be enforceable. Okay, so you have an employee who comes and, and has signed one of these agreements, they come and they say, I've got a sex harassment claim, and you say, ha ha, I've got an arbitration agreement. No, you don't, because the employee can say, I am not gonna do that, and they have a legal right to do it, and you cannot force them. So let's say you do force them, okay, and, and someone wises up and they get a good lawyer who knows what the law says. You might get that arbitration flipped if you, if you went through it and won it. Okay, what does that mean? That means you're gonna spend more time and more money, and then you're gonna be in court. Okay, another, another one of these moments, all right, Alicia, why do I care about this one? Well, because if you are not allowed to arbitrate a sex harassment claim or any kind of assault claim, where does that leave you? Where are you? Where do you go? Go to court. What's court? Open records, media, people paying attention. You know, what is the, one of the worst things that you can have is, is, oh my gosh, you know, restaurant XYZ had a sexual assault. That's bad. You know, that's bad PR. Nobody wants that kind of PR. Nobody wants it to happen in the first place, but if it does, that PR is terrible, right? And then, then, you get the media coming to your restaurant and talking to your employees, and you've got a policy that says employees don't talk to the media. And guess what? If you have that policy, then we go over to what I talked about earlier, which is, uh uh-oh, you just violated the NLRB law. Ooh, okay, so you got liability there. You got liability here. It's just stacking up, right? got to think about how these things play out. So it also means that these folks don't have to agree to any of this class action, uh, collective action waivers. So you can't say, you know, okay, you have to uh, arbitrate and, you know, everybody has to be separate. Uh -uh. They can all go to court. They can all join a class action if they want to on a sex harassment claim. That's a big one. And you see that little little asterisk at the bottom of that last, that last, uh, line? Retroactive. Very unusual, by the way. Um, you know, typically you don't see laws that are ex post facto or that go into effect after, you know, looking backward, because that doesn't seem very fair, right? That's sort of a tenet of our, of our societies. We don't say, you know, today I'm going to make it illegal to, you know, drink Starbucks coffee, and if you drank Starbucks coffee ten years ago, you know, I'm going to throw you in jail. It just makes sense. But this law, what they did was they said if there is a claim in progress that has been made, so if a claim was made um, as of March 2nd of 2022, that falls within this definition, that, you know, the laws in effect. Okay? Now, if you have a sex harassment claim that's already in arbitration, it's not going to be affected. But if you have one that comes up or that came up on March 2nd, that one does not have to go to arbitration. That's what I mean by that. Everybody got on that one? Good. All right, so takeaways. Do you want to arbitrate? Not all companies do. Some companies think it's more expensive or time consuming and they don't like it very much. There are a lot of reasons, there, there are a lot of pros and cons. I think you should talk to counsel about you know, how your company feels about it or what, what your values are um, because everybody feels differently about that. Look at your current forms because quite frankly, most companies have revised them. I know most of my clients have not and that's something they need to do. So there needs to be some kind of carve out that talks about, hey, these claims do not have to be arbitrated so that you're up front and you don't have any issues with HR saying, oh gosh, yeah, you're gonna have to arbitrate all these things because your HR folks may not know about this law. Hopefully they do. 80-20 rule, this is one of my very favorites. All of you know this one, right? Oh, gosh, I hope, you, I hope you are familiar with this one. All right, so you know that the rule changed. It changed like it flip-flopped a bunch of times with the last administration, this administration, right? And you know it went final and the new rule went into effect in I think it was end of December or beginning of January. You all know what it says? Yes, no, maybe? All right, this is a tale of three buckets. You no, know, I can't do it really well, I'm not a <laughs> There once were three buckets. All right, so now under this new 80-20 rule, we have three buckets. The first bucket is tip producing, the second one is directly work directly supporting tip producing, and the third bucket is non-tip producing. Okay, you're probably going, okay, Lawyer Barbie, <laughs> why do I care about buckets? <laughs> you care about buckets, and here's why. Here's the new rule. No tip credit, no tip credit for directly supporting work that exceeds 20% of the employee's weekly hours paid at the tip credit rate, or 30 continuous minutes. Okay, are you all kind of thinking about that? Okay. Let me make it more fun. This is, this is an example of bucket two, and I know this may be a little small to read, but this is the directly supporting tip work. This is the stuff you've got to be worried about. So for a server, you know, things like rolling silverware, for the busser, filling water glasses, for your bartender, cleaning glasses. These are in bucket two. We care about bucket two a lot. Bucket two is really important. Okay. Here's a really big reason why bucket two is important. Idle time waiting for customers goes into bucket two. Okay. Is John from Toast here is, or is he gone? Is he gone? Oh, that's, that's too bad. Um, here's why you care. If your servers are coming in and maybe they spend 15 minutes rolling silverware, Okay, you're still under the 30 minutes, right? We're, we're talking about per work week. They're still under their 30 minutes, so we're good. But what happens when it's a slow day, maybe it's a Tuesday or a Monday, and the server's got 15 minutes you know, uh, in hour one, and then maybe in hour three they got another 10, and then you know, it starts adding up. Your managers should be tracking that time. And they should have been tracking it from the beginning of the year, because once that person hits the 30 minutes in a day, because it's usually going to be in a day, you have to pay the full rate, no tip credit. So think about it, I got a server who comes in, let's say they work 40 hours, they're my best server, they spend an hour a day rolling silverware, okay? So that's five hours right there, okay? Again, you all the CFOs here, math's not my strong suit, but we got a 40 hour a week person, five of those hours now have to be paid at the regular rate because it's more than the 30 minutes. But add in the idle time, okay? Someone needs to be tracking that. I can guarantee you there's not a system out there that knows how to track this yet. And That's why I wanted John, I wanted to tell John, hey, I got another assignment for you. Somebody needs to be tracking that. Your managers need to be tracking that. And you're all probably going, huh, yeah, and that's not a big deal. What well, is a big deal? Because all it takes is one disgruntled employee to complain to the Department of Labor who marches in and says, let me see your timesheets and your your records to show when these people are idle or not. And guess what happens if you don't have them? This is one of my favorite things about the Department of Labor. If you do not have a record, they believe the employee. They go by what the employee says. Oh man, I spent three hours of my five hour shift doing that bucket two work. If you cannot disprove it, guess what? That's the number they're going to go with. So, I don't know if you've got cameras or if you've got, uh, you know, some other mechanism to be able to track this, but this is tough. And this is, I think this is the hardest part of this new rule is being able to track that kind of idle time, okay? So, the nice thing if there's multitasking, the regulations say that the the non-tipped work gets trumped. So, what I mean by that is if you have a bartender who's who's cleaning glasses and talking to um, a patron, Somebody at the bar. Well, talking to someone at the bar is generally considered bucket one. So, if, if you've got the bartender doing bucket one and bucket two work, bucket one's going to prevail. That's a good thing, but you still got to prove that. And if someone complains and goes to the Department of Labor, they're not just going to look at you. If you work with her and, and this entire section here, they're going to look at everybody. So, think about the liability on that. Because you're not paying full rate. And you all know, you all know this about the, about the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? You know what happens if there's a willful violation, right? Double down, double down, double down, two times the damages, two times the back pay for each person. Oh, and don't forget the attorney's fees. Because that's usually the biggest component, as, you, as most of you would probably know. That's the biggest component of most of these kinds of cases are the fees they pay the lawyers. Those are usually huge. So my my takeaway here is do not try to cheat the system because you will get tagged at some point if you have a a disgruntled employee. So takeaways, understand the formula, the 20% and the 30 minutes. And it's an or, by the way, if you didn't notice, it was in red and, and bold, or. Make sure your managers understand these rules, the buckets. I use the bucket analogy because to me it makes sense and it's clear and it's easy to teach. Okay. bucket one, yay, we're good. Bucket two, hmm, that's the one we worry about. Bucket three is the, you're cleaning the bathroom. I mean, obviously we all know that is nothing related to tip, tip producing work. So bucket two is our focus. You need to let your managers know, if people are standing around idle, maybe you need to start rethinking the scheduling. Okay, so this is a much deeper conversation. Do I really need that many people on this shift? Do I know that every Tuesday is my slowest day? Do I need to to have one less server on that shift? These are the kinds of things you should be thinking about because it could cost a lot. And that's what I mean by review ops. Okay, can you, do you have a way to track this time? My my guess is probably not. Yes, ma'am. Idle time is when you are not doing any of those three buckets. So, literally your server is standing there waiting for the next customer. They're not rolling silverware, they're not talking to anybody, they're just hanging out in the back, or you know, maybe handi- uh, hanging out in the back of the house waiting for somebody to come. Yes, sir? Yes? Yeah, I mean, you could, you could say, I'm going to pay uh, for the first hour of, of every shift, I'm going to pay full rate for my servers to come in and do um, you know, either non-tip producing work or um, the bucket two. You know the, the supporting work, and we used to call that side work. By the way, you know the filling of the shakers and you know those kinds of things, folding napkins, filling of uh, ketchup and, and bottles and things like that. So yes, you, that is one way around it, but you're going to have to budget for that because instead of paying in, in Texas it would be two thirteen an hour, now you're going to be paying seven and a quarter. So you're going to have to adjust your your um, costing on that. Sure. No, this this applies if you take the tip credit. This is a tip credit issue. Make sense? Any other questions on that? This one's fairly scary to me. Um, very hard to enforce. Okay, so this brings me to the next good old days. I don't know if any of you are gonna get this one, but I found this one pretty funny. So Hopefully you will too. <laughs>
0: You're Al Myers' kid. Yes, I am. You look pretty stupid to me. Thank you. Let's see if you have any brains, huh? First, you take the meat. Understand? Yeah. Here. Yeah. Pat it in the pig bowl. Push it I'm in the pig bowl. Bowl. No. This is a push. This is a pat. Then you take the pig bowl and you put it up on the tray. I put on this hat. You see that sign out there? You wear it with pride. Put it on! Oh. You gotta have pride in class in this business. You understand this kid? Now. Sir, those are the keys to this establishment. I want you in here at 6 a.m. Saturday morning. Now, this place has to be swept and mopped up before the breakfast crew gets here. Roger. All right. I'm gonna go wash my hands, I got a mold and pat. You wash your hands on your own time, boy, now get to work.
3: Yes, sir. Okay, Terrifying, right? You wash your hands on your own time <laughs> when he's making hamburgers. Better off dead if you're wondering, uh, an 80s movie, uh, another cultural icon. And if you didn't recognize this gentleman, that's John Cusack when he was very young. Missing those good old days still, right? How am I doing on time? All right, I'll, I'll move a little quicker because I, I can't read my watch from here. Um, all right, so pay card usage. Do Any of you use pay cards? Couple of you do, okay. I don't think this is terribly complicated. Most states have rules on pay cards right now. Um, most of the rules, and I've, I've looked at research in many states, you need voluntary per- participation in many states, not all. Um, limited transaction fees, uh, preferentially or preferably none. Alternative uh, form of payment, so if somebody says, I don't want a pay card, in most states I've looked at, you have to be able to pay them another way. Um, and in some states have a notice requirement where you you know you have to have some kind of signage. Um, remember that if you have any kind of fees deducted, that could be a Fair Labor Standards Act violation, so check your pay card um, terms, make sure they're not taking you know fees out of the, the individual's um, uh, account, because that could be a deduction on their wages. And then CFPB, that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, They have have their own set of rules that most people don't know about that govern that say, look, if you're going to use a pay card, you cannot force an employee to use a particular bank. Most people don't know about this rule, but if you Google Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and um, pay cards, you will find exactly what I am talking about. So if you operate in multiple states, you need to know the rules of each state. Make sure the requirements are met and handle those pay issues. You do not want people thinking that they're getting deductions or something improper is going on, and you don't know about it and you can't fix it timely. Okay, we're on. I think we're almost at our last at our last slide, and I will just preface it with: This is how I would I would uh, say it to you if I could say it this this well.
0: What in the wide wide world of sports is it going on here?
3: Yeah, really, when you see this next one, that's what you're gonna say. How many of you know about the California Fast Act? A couple of you. Okay, I'm gonna give you a really, really high level overview of this. This is now pending in the Senate in California. It creates an 11 member board that is supposed to govern wages and terms and safety and all things of uh, fast food restaurants, okay? They are supposed to hold public hearings every six months. And they are supposed to um, meet or and vote every three years to make sure that all of the terms and conditions of, of uh, employees' employment is fair and right and, and righteous and all these things. What that means is more oversight. And by the way, under this current version of this California FAST Act, franchisors, guess what? You're jointly liable with your franchisees for any kind of violations. Yay! That's another piece of this legislation, so it could be incredible. I don't know uh, you know what the temperature is, I'm, I don't live in California anymore, but if this one passes, you've got a whole other level of oversight. So, this is where I leave you. Right here. I just want to tell you both, good luck. We're all counting on you. Good luck. <laughs> We're counting on you. This is a lot to take in. So, if anyone has questions, I'll be around. Oh, oh you have time. Okay, great. Fantastic. Questions? This was a lot to cover.
0: So, I remember like six
2: years ago, this FLSA thing, and um, it just seems like it's just gonna, it's like the tide the, oh, the war on tipping. It's just gonna, so would you advise over the decade, is that just gonna go away? Is tipping gonna go away?
3: That's a really good question. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the National Restaurant Association's conference, the legislative conference, where we were lobbying our our state legislators or not state legislators, our federal legislators. And there is a lot of misunderstanding. Even though tipping or tip credit, all that has been around for a long time, there's a huge misunderstanding. And there is such a strong lobby right now to get rid of tipping that it would not surprise me if it if it eventually goes away. I can tell you anecdotally, most employees I talk to love the tips, they're happy with the tips, they make a lot of money with tips, and I, I just wish they would have more of those folks testifying in Congress to say, look, here's how it works. You know, I make $50, $60 an hour, um, you know, I don't make 213 an hour, I make a lot more than that, but, but a lot of your, your uh, Congress folks don't understand that, surprisingly.
2: Who's done away with uh, tipping here? If I raise a hand? Who, who in their restaurants have everyone still? Up? Because there was, you know, everyone was trying it, you know, and then uh, Danny Meyer did it in New York. everyone knew that, and that didn't really work there, and it works at certain concepts. But I think what we see in most of our uh, clients, it, like you said, the employees are making more money. Uh, with the, the, the tips. I mean, the issue is always the war between the back of the house and the front of the house, Right. but the ability now to sort of work through that is, has made a little bit better, well, so.
3: How many of you have been to Europe and, and eaten out in Europe? Yeah, you, how, what kind of service do you get there? Because if it's anything like the service I've gotten, you know, I could be there for a year and not get a glass of water. I mean, they, they don't work on tips, they work on their own time, and they're you know it's, it is a completely different experience. I personally think tipping is great, because I, I personally believe it incentivizes good service. Um, I see the arguments for taking it away. I get both sides, um, and I understand the economics behind that, um, but I can tell you that in personal, my personal dining experience, other than being a lawyer, um, you know, they, they do a good job, and they get tipped well.
2: And, and Lisa didn't go through it yesterday, because most of you who are full-service restaurants get the FICA tip credit, which is different than the tip credit we're talking about. But, you know, getting, going to the hourly wage and getting rid of the tip credit and then you lose out on that ability to, uh, you know, to get the tip, the, the tax credit on, you know, against the income tax. So there is some.
1: Along the lines with tipping, are you seeing issues with tip pooling versus employees not wanting to be involved in tip pooling at, at different restaurants?
3: You know, that's, inter- that's an interesting question. I don't actually get a lot of tip-pulling questions. Um, the questions I get on tip-pulling usually come out of California or Oregon for some reason. I mean, I don't know what it is about Texas that's just not an issue. And of course, tip rules where you, you know, you have the ability to share with the back of the house, I think that's, I think it's dissipated. No, no, no.
2: Federal. That's what I'm saying. No, that's saying federal me.
3: law. Federal law.
2: Yeah, who, who is doing tip-pulling? right now in their restaurants. that's a pretty recent uh, you know legislation that allows for it now yeah yep, but you got also you got to also be careful with you know the managers versus you know the you know hourly and so forth so you know, that's another litigation
3: yeah that part hasn't changed. do not have managers in a tip pool. okay if, if you take nothing else away from this that one is one you need to take away
1: um, I don't know a lot about the unions. What does that thirty percent cost increase consist of? Is that like legal fees? Is that labor? All of
3: the above. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's all of it. I mean, you have to you have to bargain over terms and conditions. So if if you know you want to change breaks or you want to implement breaks or you want to do a pay you know pay increase or pay scale increases or anything having to do with the term and condition of employment, which is a very broad spectrum, you have to negotiate. So you can have, a, you can have a, a company representative, but you're definitely going to want to have counsel assisting in the background. But yeah, unions make things more expensive. A- everything you do, you, know, you, you have uh, arbitrations that you need to do with uh, um, uh, people who have um, you know, issues with their performance. You don't need to just fire anybody anymore.
2: Oh. <laughs> just stay back. Got extra. Actually-
3: So we have a no solicitation agreement. Have you seen those to be helpful in preventing or at least slowing the formation of unions? Are you talking about no solicitation like during work time for unions? Yeah, like they can't distribute things in the workplace. Yeah, so that would be non-solicitation and non-distribution. They go together. Um, Have I seen that those have an impact? Quite frankly, no. I mean, you should have that policy, because you don't want people trying to unionize during work time on your work floor. You know, you don't want that, nobody wants that. That would be disruptive. Um, but is, is that a huge deterrent? Quite frankly, no. Honestly, no.
2: Any, any other questions? I, I just gotta say, just because, um, you know, there's, I know it's surprising, there's a lot of attorneys out there, this 80-20 rule. That are going to come talk to the, your employees. They're going to find a way to get some type of lawsuit against your companies. We've seen it in the earlier years, you know, do, regarding overtime and pay and things like that. And I just think they're just these certain lawyers out there are salivating with this eighty twenty because it is so gray in that you know second bucket. So, right, yeah, and it's if it, there's class action, there's money for this and. Um, So just, you know, I I think this is what I was, you know, this session I thought was very important, especially the 80-20. Most of you are aware of it, are scared of it, because I've talked to a lot of my clients. So you have to go back and talk to your HR people, talk to your managers, and I think that's the big takeaway here. But thank you very much. Great session.
0: Thank you for listening to BDO to go past episodes and related insights are available at BDO.com BDO to go, or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate review, share or subscribe to this podcast. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO for more information on BDO's restaurant industry practice and the resources we provide visit www.bdo.com restaurants.